All right, uh, let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, whose compassion never fails and who invites us to call upon you in prayer, hear the heartfelt confession of our sins and receive our humble supplication for your mercy. Spare us from the just punishment of sin, which our Lord Jesus Christ has borne for us, and enable us to serve you in holiness and purity of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so we're in our ninth week. Um, let me pull this up. So we're in our ninth week, and we are... Um, t- today, we're considering justification and the forgiveness of sins. And uh, so we're, we only have three weeks left after this. The, the things we're going to talk about are um, justification, holy baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then finally the last things, that is the end days or the end times. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those things then. But today is on justification, the forgiveness of sins, which I think is the most important uh, lesson. And this is... This is crucial for being a Lutheran. This is, I mean, this is everything. Um, let me pull up my notes here. Okay, here they are. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, lesson eight we covered last week was on the work of the Holy Spirit. And that was on faith, on the gift of faith, on conversion. How are people converted? Where does faith come from? How is faith created? Things like that. Lesson nine is on justification and the forgiveness of sins. Now, the connection between these two classes is huge. This is, these two go together. So really, um, all of it is important, but the most important is lesson eight and nine. This is, if you get this, you will be Lutheran and the rest will will make sense. Um, The first thing is this, is that there's two reasons why there's this strong connection. First is the object of faith. So, Lesson eight tells us that we should have faith, um, that we should have faith, and it tells us where faith comes from. Um, and lesson nine tells us today tells us what we have faith in. So lesson eight is that you should have faith and where it comes from, and then lesson nine says what do you believe then? What are you supposed to believe? What does what is the object of faith? I want to address something here quickly. Uh, faith is a transitive verb, meaning it's a verb that needs an object. Intransitive verbs, if you remember from grammar class or English, uh, they don't need an object. For example, you can say an intransitive verb is I walk. You can just say I walk and that it's self-contained here. Your walking isn't being done to someone or something. It's just what you're doing. But transitive verbs they don't make sense on their own. Uh, they're things that need an object. For example, if you say, I pay, well, you, you pay what, right? Or I love, well, you love what? Or I discuss. <laughs> you have to discuss with somebody. So you ha- there has to be an object in order to complete the sentence. So you, you can't just discuss on your own. Uh, you're paying someone. You're discussing with somebody. So faith is a transitive verb. It's not intransitive, meaning you can't just say, I have faith. 
That's not enough. That's, um, it, it's, it's not a full sentence to just simply say, I have faith. Uh, you have to have faith in something or someone. It's like saying, I believe. Well, what do you believe? <laughs> you can't just believe. Believe in itself doesn't mean anything. You have to believe in something. So uh, the, pro- the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of people will treat faith like an intransitive verb. Simply saying, oh, don't worry, I have faith. Um, well, the, then the question follows is, well, faith in what? What do you believe in? So you can't just believe, you have to believe in something. You need an object of faith. Um, the confusion here is that people confuse their sincerity of true faith with faith itself. You can be sincerely wrong. You can have, the wrong, you can have a strong and sincere faith in the wrong God. Now, just because that faith is strong, it doesn't do anything. You're believing in the wrong God. You can also have a very weak faith in the right God. And if you could refer back to the last uh, lesson, when I t- at the end of the lesson, when I talked about the analogy of walking on, on a frozen lake. Um, and what, the difference between what you believe and what you believe in. Um, now, the second point here is that this lesson is going to tell you how Lutherans differ. <clears throat> Lesson eight last week was about, it really distinguished Lutherans from most Protestant evangelical Christians. Because the Bible, as I showed you, and I'm happy to show you even more, the Bible says that faith is a work of God and not a work of man. So that's lesson eight. And that distinguishes Lutherans from all Protestants, except for the Reformed, for the Presbyterians. But all the other Protestants, we are distinguished from them because we admit that faith itself is a gift of God and not a work of man. Lesson nine today distinguishes Lutherans from Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith alone and not by our works. And so these two lessons are warding off the extremes. From the one side to uh, uh, from one side to say we're not saved by our works. That means we're saved by grace through faith alone. And then the other side says, well, then faith is a work. And we're saying no to both of them. We're not saved by our works, and faith is not a work. In fact, it is by grace alone. And what does that mean? So, I want to talk about that uh, today, and I I want to start by making a distinction between forgiveness of sins and justification. We oftentimes will speak of them synonymously, but they're, they're actually not synonyms, really. Uh, there's a distinction here. Uh, what is the difference? Well, forgiveness is a negative action and justification is a positive action. So forgiveness is the taking away of something and justification is the giving of something. So let me give you an an analogy I came up with here. Um, imagine that I um, I invite you all to a party, <clears throat> and I tell you to bring your own food. Now, one of you uh, doesn't have anything at home to bring to the party, so there's no stores on the way to the party. We live in I don't know North Dakota. There's nothing around. You can't stop. Uh, there's no grocery stores or anything around. So as you're driving, uh, you see like a raccoon that was run over, some roadkill. Uh, there's maggots and things, you know, and it's it smells awful. So you take this raccoon and you put it into the, a Tupperware container. 
and then you you drive for another hour <laughs> you knock on the door and then you say i'm here and i say okay did you bring the food and you say yep i have the food right here in this container and so technically you have food right but is that food good is it is it acceptable do you think the host is going to uh receive this food or say um yeah come on in yeah that's fine that's totally acceptable no uh and and you will say look well you said that i needed to bring some food and technically this is food and then the host is going to say he's going to say no i meant edible food i meant good food things that we can all eat so the ho- the host will take your tupperware container your plate and you know a, a scrape off all of the the nastiness from it wash it clean um bleach it whatever it might be and then now the question is do you have an empty plate or an empty container is that enough to get into the party no because the rule wasn't to bring a clean plate it was to bring a dish it was to bring food so you have a clean plate but no food so then the host then says here you can have my food here and he fills it with steak and potatoes and whatever else it might be okay in this ridiculous example uh this is what the forgiveness of sins and justification is like the forgiveness of sins is the taking away of all of the evil and the filth and the sin but the removal of sin is not enough to get you into heaven the forgiveness of sins is not enough to get you into heaven Th- consider this we we not only have to have no sin but we need to be righteous so it's not just enough that we're neutral or that we're we're zeroed out and we're just a a tabula rasa just a clean slate we actually have to be good to be into coming to heaven and so this is what justification is so that the forgiveness of sins is the wiping away of all of the filth and the sin and justification is the imputing or the attributing of all of the good things so to say what is the standard to get into heaven it's not just to not be sinful or to be not sinful but the standard is to be righteous to be holy and good and perfect it's it's not to be a neutral uh, uh zero it's to be the 100 it's to be full of righteousness and that's the distinction the forgiveness of sins is the removal of sin justification is the imputing of righteousness is the giving of good things okay the 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 question follows do we need this forgiveness do we need the forgiveness of sins uh psalm 51 verse 5 is very clear it says behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me this whole psalm psalm 51 is a psalm written after david committed adultery with bathsheba which he knew was wrong and he killed her husband uriah in in battle a, a lot of other bad things uh so david is not confessing his mother's sin here <laughs> he's not saying my mom uh did something wrong by conceiving me in sin he's saying uh he's confessing his own sin and so the psalmist talking about he's not saying he became sinful at some point in his life that he was good and then at the age of 13 he was sinful or something he w- he's confessing no that i was born sinful no even before that 
I was conceived in sin. That is, David inherited the sin from his father and his mother, who inherited it from their father and mother and their father and mother all the way back to Adam and Eve, who sinned. Right? So it's, it's like this hereditary disease. Uh, re- regardless of whether you think this is fair, that, that's a moot point. There's no, there's no point in debating that, whether you think, I don't think this, the child should be punished for the, the father's sins. Whether you think that or not doesn't matter. The point is that's what's happening. <laughs> that's the issue. It's, think of it like a disease that you have in your genes. Your wife has in her genes. You have a baby and now the baby has this disease. Well, you can, you can turn blue in the face debating this and say, oh, that's not fair. But it's the reality. We're stuck with it. The, the question is, well, what do you do now? Um, so this is the issue is that a sinful father marries a sin or a husband, a man uh, marries a sinful woman, their husband and wife, and they give birth to a sinful baby. There's no way that the baby's going to be neutral or righteous. The, at, at, at best, the best chance the baby has is that he's going to be born in sin, conceived in sin. Um, this is the dire need of our salvation, of the forgiveness of sins. That there, there was not a, which means there's not a moment in our life, not a, not a nanosecond in our life when we did not need Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. That, that's the point. There's, not a, there's no age of accountability. What David says here is he doesn't say I was good for a few years and, and then I screwed it up. He's saying the whole time, oh, I need I need a savior for, for everything, for my whole life. Um, okay, um, the, the, the second text is Psalm 19, verse 12. Um, the psalmist says, he says, who can discern his errors, his sins here? Cleanse me from hidden faults. That is, cleanse me from errors and faults that are not hidden to you, that are hidden to me. So, meaning we sin daily and more often than we know. That means we're not as sinful as we know. We're not as sinful as we feel. No matter how guilty you feel about your sin, you're more guilty than you realize. Um, so, so you can compare this to cancer. Cancer is worse than you realize. You don't feel cancer. Uh, until it's pretty late. Uh, but the doctor will run tests. He'll tell you, look, this is what your brain looks like. I, I ran the MRI. I ran the tests. I did all this stuff. This is what your heart looks like or your lungs look like. And you could say, well, I don't believe that because I feel fine. That's not true. That's not my brain. I think, I think great. And he says, no, look, I'm showing you something that you can't see. It's deeper than you realize. And you can't feel it, but the issue is still there. Well, the same goes with sin. You may feel fine. You may feel like, hey, I, I have a lot of freedom. I have control. I have willpower. But God sees beyond that. He sees our, our soul. And he sees there is something wrong with you. you. In fact, we are so sinful that we don't even know how sinful we are. It's like we're, we're calloused. We're, we're numb to the amount of sin that we have. And this... That, that's an even worse danger. So if you feel sinful, then you go to Christ. And if you don't feel sinful, 
then you go to Christ because you need him all the more, right? Um, the, the last text I want to share with you is Isaiah 59 verse 2. It says this, that your sins, it's talking to all people, your sins have made a separation between you and God. So you and God were together, you're one, but what separates you, it is your sin. It's not that God moved away or he's far away. It's that you fell far from him. Uh, and that's the just reward for our sins, separation from God. This means that if we lose God, if we're separated from God, we also lose all the good things that God gives us. That means peace. That means happiness. That means joy. That means comfort. That means rest. That means heaven. Uh, so on and so forth. That, that means we would live this life living, waiting only for hell forever. So, so sin... Sin is a very serious thing. It, it, it is nothing to trifle with. It, it, it's it's not, a, um, or not, not a light or trifling matter. It is serious. It is profound. So that's our need. We need it, all of us. Even the smallest baby in the womb needs this. The next question is this. Does God forgive sins? And the answer is yes, he does. And that should overwhelm us with joy. It just astound us. It's mind-blowing. I mean, to the angels of heaven that they are saying, this God forgives that world. All of those people, all the things are, he forgives them. Uh, Psalm 130 verse 4 says this, With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. With you. That means... Without you, there is no forgiveness. But with you, there is. So, I mean, we, we have to take this to heart because do you know how many people have died longing, yearning to hear the words of Psalm 130 verse 4? Just knowing uh, at the right time um, that there's a God that who loves you and forgives your sins. Do, do you know how many people ended their life thinking that God does not forgive sins, that there is no forgiveness with God, that what they did was unforgivable and that they, that the only solution, the only uh, uh, answer is to end my life. That's, that's so sad. I mean, and yet we hear these words and, and so many people, we, I do this too. I, I repent of this. Just hearing this and then taking it for granted. Like, yeah, God forgives sins. Great. He's a, he's a nice guy. And, and in fact, this is, this is the, the greatest thing. This is the thing keeping me alive. This is the thing that, that makes me happy and joyful every day. Uh, Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives um, some of your sins or, or most of your sins. No. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all of your sins, all of your iniquity. Psalm 103. This, this, should, this is what makes us sleep well at night. We can sleep well no matter what happened in the day. We say, God is with me and he forgives my sins. Romans 4 verse 5 says, God justifies the ungodly. That is, the people who are not like God. Well, what is God like? He is holy and righteous and good and perfect. Well, who, who's not like God? Well, that's us. We're not perfect and righteous and good. 
God doesn't charge our sins against us, but he declares us righteous and just. In, in, in fact, it says he, God justifies the ungodly. Remember the distinction between forgiveness of sins and, and ungodly. He doesn't just say you're not guilty. He says you are what? Righteous. He doesn't say you're not a bad person. He says you are a good person. That, that's huge. This is, this is everything. That's our ticket into heaven is what he says about us. Okay. So with all this being said, we, we say, are we sinful? Yes. Are we in need of forgiveness of sins? Yes. Does God forgive sins? He absolutely does. He said so. Now, the question is, well, what is God's attitude? Um, I, I have to check my own thoughts on this because I oftentimes think that God forgives me begrudgingly. Like he just shakes his head. Like I come back and I repent of my sins and he's like, ah, when, when are you going to learn? Like what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, or, or that God forgives me on a technicality. Like, well, okay, technically, yeah, I'm supposed to forgive you. So you're forgiven. No, I, I think that the reason we think God forgives us that way is because that's kind of how we forgive our neighbor. Um, we forgive them begrudgingly or on a technicality or because I'm supposed to. But, um, and if I forgive, have to forgive someone, I'm kind of upset about it or I'm still annoyed and my heart is, is vexed and, and uh, uh, still in consternation over this. But what does Luke 15 verse 7 say? He says, there Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That, that, that is beautiful. Um, that God doesn't forgive us on a legality, on, 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 on a technicality or begrudgingly. He forgives us joyfully. That he, he's waiting there with arms open and he's not going to say, how could you? He's, Welcome home, come and he embraces you. Right, that's the that's the, the parable of the prodigal son. It's it's the most beautiful text in scripture. The most beautiful parable, I think. Um, okay, with, with all that being said, I, I want to talk about the joy of God when He forgives us. He's happy to do it. Um, our our attitude in being forgiven um, is oftentimes one of complacency. So I asked this question to the kids in confirmation and to a number of people. I'll ask, um, does God forgive our sins? And they'll say yes. And that's great. But we've grown up in such a world where this truth is just taken for granted. We say, oh, look, what a great guy. God forgives our sins. That's nice. Um, And then we use this as a license to keep sinning. And we say, well, God will forgive me. That's who he is. But what if I ask the question, does God forgive sins? And what if the answer were no? God doesn't forgive sins. <laughs> what, what would you do? Um, or, or what if the answer were even maybe? Maybe. Like you were just uncertain of it. Well, maybe God forgives sins. Well, or it depends. It depends upon what, what did you do? But maybe he forgives him. Well, 
what would you do if <laughs> would your life look the same would you behave the same way or not would your life change if if the answer were different if your life would change then that's a good sign that you're most likely using god's forgiveness as a license to sin <laughs> You're saying, well, well, God forgives. Well, then let me just indulge a little bit. Let me just go ahead and, and, and do these things. Um, re- and, and for that, we should repent, all of us. We should say, look, God, please help me not take the most beautiful thing you have said and done and then just trample it under underfoot, right? God, God keep me from, from doing that. Okay, that's just a small footnote there. Um, okay. I, th- this next question is more like a, a technical or theological question, but it is important, practically speaking, for your life. Um, and the question is this, how can a holy and righteous God forgive sins? Um, you, you have a conundrum in, in Islam where you have God, they, they claim that Allah is just, and then he's also merciful. Those are contradictory terms. How, how can you do? You can't be both. You can't give people what they deserve. That's being just. And you can't not give people what they deserve. That's being merciful. That is having, you don't give them what they deserve. How can you do both? Um, while remaining just. Because if you remain just, then you're not merciful. And if, if you're merciful, then you're not just. So you can't do both. Well, how does a holy and righteous God forgive sins? Um, in Islam, you don't have a God who sacrifices himself for, the, for sinners. That, that doesn't exist. Um, so in Islam, you have this tension and it's a, just a plain old contra, uh, contradiction. And there's no way around it. In, Christiani- in Christianity, this is resolved by the death of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me show you this text. Um, Okay. So this text says, for our sake, so that's for our benefit, for us, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that is, who committed no sin, who had no sin in him, in his thought or deed or desire. God made him, who was completely and totally righteous, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, for the reason that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, this, this text is incredibly important for, for Christians. I mean, you, you need to, to write that down or highlight it. This is called the great exchange, that Jesus takes all of our sin. In fact, he, he, he is our sin on the cross. And on the cross, God strikes him down. For everything that we deserved, he's, it's like a, like a lightning rod. I think I've told you this before, but um, a lightning rod is, is up in the, pointed up in the sky 
so that lightning would strike that and not the building or anyone around it. Well, this is what the cross of Jesus is like, so that Christ is, is set up before the face of the world so that the anger of God would come down and strike him and not us, right? And this is a great exchange so that he gets all of the anger of God and we get all of the righteousness of God, the favor of God, that God would look upon us like he looks upon his son. And that means that God looked upon his son how he looked upon us, how he, how he deserved to look upon us. The, the way you look at a murderer and you just look at him in disgust and say, you, you deserve the death penalty. You deserve the worst punishment. That's how God looked at his dear son who committed no sin. And then the way you would look at Jesus and say, what a beautiful, innocent man who did no wrong. That's the way God looks at you. <laughs> this is a great exchange so that Jesus takes all of our sin and in exchange, we get all of his righteousness, his everlasting life. Everything Jesus deserved, we get. First um, John 2, 2. This is a beautiful text too. It says, Jesus is the propitiation. That's a, a heavy, loaded word, but it, it means sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice. He is the sacrifice for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, this is what we would call objective justification. It's a technical term, and I, I don't want to confuse you guys here. But it's simply, you could call it general justification. Is that Jesus was crucified to atone for the sins, not of the Jews only, not of his people only, not of Christians only, not of you only, not even of the sins of those who believe, but he atoned for the sins of the entire world. That means even the unbeliever, Christ suffered for his sins. That mean, th This doesn't mean, I'm not saying that everyone will be saved. That's called universalism. That's, I, we, that's not what the Bible teaches. But what the Bible does teach is that Christ's death was for the sins of the world so that everyone has the potential and the ability to be saved. There's not one person for whom Jesus did not spill his blood. People can reject his blood. They can reject his atonement. They can reject what he did. But they can't make it happen. Jesus made it happen on, on the cross. Um, so 2 Corinthians 5.19 uh, says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against them and entrusting to us, Paul says, that is to pastors, the message of reconciliation, the preaching of it. So what this means is that, okay, there's, there's a rift. There's a, uh, uh, so um, b between two family members, right? A father and I don't know, the, the, the mother, they're, they're something happened and they're, they're separated. Well, uh, one has reconciled himself to the other. He has done everything uh, possible to reconcile with, her, with his wife. Well, this is what's happening with God, that God is the one has, who has reconciled himself to us. That means that God is not angry with the world for their sins. Uh, he is not counting the, the sins of uh, our sins against us. Um, 
Oh, good question. So Laura says, what about people who have never heard about Christ? So I'll answer that in two ways uh, briefly here. Uh, one is that um, if there are people who have not heard about Christ, we leave that to God's judgment. We, we know that God is just, he's also merciful, and we leave it to him. But the second thing is that Revelation uh, 7 tells us that in heaven, um, John sees this vision of all of the saints. And he says, there was one from every tribe and nation uh, who, who was there. Which means that there was somebody, like we, we think of a, a tribe, I don't know, in the Amazons who, who never heard of Christ or something. And, and theoretically, I, I, I don't, you know, we can think about this. It's a hypothetical situation. But what Revelation tells us is that there's one from every tribe and every nation who is there, who has been saved. So that there's not one person. So that there, when, when Jesus says, we'll get into this in um, uh, lesson uh, in two weeks from now. And I'll talk about it more then. When we talk about the Lord's Supper and the church, uh, we'll talk about how the church is made up and also the last things the in three weeks from now. Um, we'll talk about what, what does that mean that there's one from every tribe and nation. But uh, the bottom line is that God has promised, or he's revealing to us, he's fast forwarding the tape, showing us the end and saying, hey, in the end, there's at least one person from every single one of these tribes, which means there's not anyone without an excuse, right? Nobody has an excuse to say, well, God never revealed enough to us. And the answer is, well, he did. He did. So we can, we can talk about that more in the, uh, the weeks to come too. So that's a very good question. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. I, I want to I move on to this. This is super important. Uh, the connection between Good Friday and Easter. Okay. Um, you know, there, there are people who will just kind of show up to church on, on Christmas and Easter. And that's kind of the cliche. Um, and, and I always want to remind the people on Easter that this day doesn't make a lot of sense unless you came on Good Friday. In, in fact, they're one service. It's just one one thing. Even though they're days apart, it is one unit. Uh, think of it this way. And I want to tell you the connection between Good Friday, when Christ was crucified, which we, which we talked about two lessons ago, and Easter, his resurrection. Um, Romans 4, 25. Let me, let me put this on the screen here for you. Um, that's 4, 25. I'm going to... Okay, it says, it will be counted to us, that is declared, that's what the word counted to us or reckoned to us, who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, there's two different things. There's two things going on here. The the delivered up is being handed over, delivered up to the cross for our sins, our trespasses. And then it says, well, three days later, and he was raised up for our 
justification. Um, it, this is, we don't want to gloss over this. On Good Friday, God charged the sins of the entire world to the sinless Christ. That means when Christ died on Good Friday, he paid the debt for the, enti- for the sins of the entire world. On Good Friday, he removed our trespasses. And he won for us the forgiveness of sins. And, and on Good Friday, he could say, you are not guilty. Okay. Then on Easter morning, what's happening? It says Jesus rose for our justification. He credits and attributes all of the good things that Jesus did. He declared us righteous. In, in this verse, Romans 4.25, this is astounding. Theologically speaking, the Bible not only tells us that Jesus forgave our sins and justified us, but it also tells us exactly when he did these things. That on Good Friday, it is the removal of sin. And on Easter, it is the attributing of good things, of righteousness. Right. So that, that example of the, um, uh, of the dead raccoon on the plate and then <laughs> filling it with good things. Th- this is what's happening. It, one is the removal of the bad and the other is the placing of the good. Uh, it, it, this means that Jesus, what Jesus did, he didn't just, for, didn't just forgive our sins. He declared you righteous, which means that God doesn't just put up with you. It means he delights in you. Um, I, I, I want to tell you also that this is also a confirmation of salvation. Good Friday and Easter are meant to go together. They, they have to go together. You, you, you can't understand one without the other. What, he rose from the dead. Well, did he die? Well, yes. Okay. Then you have to attend Good Friday. Come to, out of all the weeks of the year, right? You, you go to these two services together. Um, Good Friday and Easter go together, not only because they're needed for our salvation, but because Easter confirms Good Friday, Okay, let, let me give you a, an analogy here. And this is, um, I don't think I've ever uh, told this to anyone at Zion before. So this might be the first time. Um, I'm not a big fan of football, but I understand the rules and how it works. Okay, uh, you're playing football. It's, uh, well, two teams are playing football. It's the fourth quarter. Uh, one team is losing by five points. Uh, they have the ball. They're on the one yard line. It's the last play of the game. Uh, The quarterback decides to run the ball. And he's running and he runs into all you see is a big pile of six foot, 300 pound guys. And he goes and then all you see is a dog pile and they all pile up and it's just chaos. You don't see on the screen on the in the stadium. You don't see anything. Um, You don't even see the the ball anymore. The referee runs over and everybody's trying to clear out and, and everybody's in suspense saying, what happened? What happened? Um, the referee runs over and he's looking, he's looking, he's looking. What is he looking for? He's looking for the ball to be past the line. And just any part of it, if it's past the line, it's, it's a touchdown. Um, and then what does he do? He puts his hands up and it's a touchdown and you win the game. Now, 
even though all of the work happened the in the play um and even though it worked uh, happened all during the play and all of the running and 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 tackling uh the points are not rewarded until when the referee puts up his hands until the that's when the scoreboard changes. It doesn't change when when all of the commotion happens. It changes when he the ref says, "Yes, it's it's good." Right? In the same way, this is this is the connection. In the same way, this is what's happening on Easter morning. Good Friday is the play. Good Friday is him doing all of the work. Um, but Sunday morning is like the referee is God looking at this, examining it and saying, yes, it's valid. I accept this. This is, this is a touchdown, right? This is, this works. And this is the point. It's officially changing the scoreboard um, that th- the work that Jesus did is valid and good. This is what it means that he was raised for our justification. If Jesus death wasn't perfect, if it wasn't immaculate, then the father would have not would have never raised him from the dead. He wouldn't have put his hands, raised his hands, and said it's good. He would have, Jesus would have remained in the tomb, just like everybody else who sins and dies remains in the tomb, because that's where they deserve to be, to to be. But the fact that the father raised him from the dead is proof that Jesus' death is the perfect death. He died perfectly. It was, it was immaculate. It was the most beautiful, perfect kind of death you could have ever imagined. Even though he's gasping for air, emaciated, choking on his own blood, he dies with perfect faith in the Father, not turning away from him for a moment. And then the Father says, that is how you, you die, right? That is good. That is perfect. That is the, what, what I intended. And so... The resurrection of Jesus is the declaration of God to say, this is good and it's valid and it's acceptable and the sacrifice he made is good for the world. And it all ends. The temple ends, the sacrifices end, the, all of the laws of the Old Testament end in that moment because Christ fulfilled them, <laughs> right? So th- th- that... I, I, it's important because I, I want to drive this deep, deep into your heart so that you realize Easter is, is the end of the story. It's like opening a book and, and reading, just starting them in the middle or reading the last chapter. It makes no sense. You, you have to go to Good Friday. Um, and I'm not saying that to take another offering. I'm not saying that because we just want to get people involved. no. Trust me, if you have never been to a Good Friday service or you have, you have, you have to go, you have to, you, you, it's, if you love Jesus, um, it's, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing. Okay. Uh, let me move on to the next point here. If there are more questions, let me know. But, um, there's a few things I want to run through. I think we can get through this all, um, without going over time. Uh, the, the question is, Okay. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. This is something I talked about in the last lesson. He died 2,000 years ago. Well, how do we get that? How do we receive the forgiveness of sins? How do we receive his death? Uh, 
there's there's three points here. One is that the Holy Spirit delivers it to us. He he gives it to us. Aha. Uh, well, the Holy Spirit um, uh, is is wherever the Word of God is. So Luke twenty four forty seven, Jesus Himself says, "Forgiveness of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, regardless of who you are, where you live." Um, the forgiveness of sins is for all nations, all people, no matter what age, sex, uh, time, or, or place. Uh, God has, God wants you to hear about this. Okay. Second uh, Corinthians five nineteen says this: God has entrusted us, that is pastors, with the message of reconciliation. Meaning, uh, so so take the analogy: somebody scores the touchdown. Well then. Uh, you're at your home and you don't have cable and you didn't watch the, the news or you didn't see the play happen. Well, somebody has to tell you about it and say, yeah, our team won. This is how it happened. Well, this is what the apostles are doing. You weren't there to witness the play and the referee put up his hands, but there were others who were and they run out and they tell you it, it's good. <laughs> it, it's valid. And it, it happened. So God entrusts this message of reconciliation, which is preaching. That's the first thing. Uh, The Holy Spirit delivers uh, this forgiveness to us. Uh, The second thing is that the delivery or the message of forgiveness is received by faith. Uh, Romans 3.28 says a man is justified by faith. And this is kind of getting to the heart of this lesson here. Romans 4.3 says Abraham believed God. This is a, a... New Testament, writing about an Old Testament, thousands of years ago, an Old Testament man. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. The, Abraham was in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus was born. And what does the Bible say? It says he was saved by believing. He was saved by faith in the Christ who was to come. He was not saved by his obedience. He was not saved by his works. What I'm, what I'm driving home here is that uh, we oftentimes have this misconception that the people of the Old Testament were saved by works and the law. And in the New Testament, were saved by grace and faith. No, the entire time of all of world history the people who have been saved have been saved by by grace alone through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the people in the Old Testament didn't know he would be named Jesus. They didn't know he would. Uh, it wasn't until uh, Malachi that they knew he would be born in Bethlehem, so on and so forth. But uh, Adam and Eve knew there was a man. There was a son of ours who was promised to crush the head of the serpent to crush what this guy, what this little serpent did to us. There's one of our kids is going to do that. They knew that and they believed it. So they were looking forward to the promise. The people in Jesus day were looking at the promise. And now we are looking back to the promise. We're looking back at the empty tomb and saying, yeah, (laughs) Uh, I heard of all this. I heard of, I heard all the things that people have said about Jesus and his tomb was empty and, 
and he was cru- he was crucified and his tomb is empty and people died for the name of Christ. Okay, so so that's what's going on here. Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness, even though Christ had not died yet. Now, let, let me just explain that quickly. I got to do this quickly. I'm running out of time. Uh, why is it that the people of the Old Testament are saved by by Christ, even though he hadn't died yet? Well, it's because God can't lie. So if somebody can't lie, and if, <laughs> take take it that somebody something somebody says is always true, they can't lie. Well, if they say something, then what? It's as good as done. <laughs> if, if, if somebody who, who it is impossible for them to lie says, I will do this, then it's as if they did it. <laughs> it's as if, what's the future as opposed to the past tense? This is the point is that if, if God can't lie, it, there's no wavering. There's no maybe or questioning. It is certain. It is foundational. Okay. Uh, the second thing is that, that the delivery or the message of forgiveness is received by faith alone. Third, the message gives us the faith to believe in the message. And I know that's circular. The message gives us faith, but the message requires faith, but the message gives faith. <laughs> And faith believes the message and, and on and on. Well, which means, goes back to lesson eight, that where does faith come from? It comes from Jesus. It is received, it is accepted by faith alone. Um, this is what we would call, as opposed to objective or general justification, which we talked about before, this is what we call individual or subjective justification. Uh, it's two sides of the same coin. Um, you You... You can't remove one side without removing the other. Christ died for all. Therefore, he died for me. Why? Because I'm, I'm one of the all. So if he died for all, then he, then he died for me. Okay. I, I want to get to this last point, And this is, we'll spend the final 20 minutes on this. This is so incredibly crucial. Do good works help us in receiving salvation? In other words, the question here is, are we saved by faith and works? Like 50-50 or even even 90-10? Romans 4, 3 through 5 says this. For what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. As it, 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 he deserves it. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Uh, look at Galatians 5 verse 4. It says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So in other words, if, if you... You can only do one of two things. You can either have Christ or you can have your works. But you can't have both. Because if you have your works, then you're severed from Christ. But if you have Christ, then you are severed from your works. If you, so, so what Paul is saying here is if you want to be justified by what you do, then you have to negate everything Jesus did. But if you want to be justified by what Jesus did, then you negate everything you have done. Um, 
th that's why his words are so, so powerful. You're severed, ripped apart from Christ, you who want to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Romans 3.28 says this, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can either believe or you can work, but you can't do both. There's no mixture of it. This is what Romans 3 says. Uh, Ephesians 2 also says, uh, starting at verse 8, we, we looked at this text before, but for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, um, I want to just give one announcement here. Um, there's a text... A verse, uh, I think it's James 2.19. Um, and uh, pe people say that, well, this is troubling. It seems to contradict this. It doesn't contradict it. I'm giving the women's Bible study on when, or, or Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Um, I know I said it's for women, but anybody can join it. I'm not going to kick you out of it. But we're going through the book of James. And we're about to get into uh, chapter 2 in about 2 or 3 weeks. So... If you have questions about that, I can't answer it all now. We don't have time, but I will answer it in the class and I'll do. And if you want to write me, I'm, I'm happy to, to email you back. Okay. This is the thing I really want to get to. Um, the difference between the Lutheran church and the, the Roman Catholic church. The main difference between the Lutherans and Roman Catholics is not chiefly about the Pope. It is not about chiefly, mainly about the Virgin Mary or the saints or the conduct of the service or things like this. The chief central issue the entire time was always justification. In other words, how is somebody saved from hell and how does somebody go to heaven? That is the heart of it. That is what Luther was willing to die for. That, that, that specific point. I, I, don't, I don't want you to get distracted or think it's about, oh, we don't like the Pope and we're just rebellious. Or Yes, those are problems and we'll address that. The main issue, the main, 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 main issue always was forgiveness of sins. How do we go to heaven? And the Lutheran church what Luther said in 1521 was that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. He was willing to die for it. I'm willing to die for it. Everybody at the church is willing to die for that sentence. <laughs> that, that's how enormous, just gargantuan of a statement that is. The Roman Catholic Church said, we are saved by uh, we are saved by faith plus and good works. Um, recently, there was a document titled "The Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification," the, and when I say recently, I mean nineteen ninety nine. I think I was in what grade it was? Was I in eighth grade, ninth, seventh grade, something like that? Uh, and I heard about this, and I was. I didn't understand it until, you know, my late 20s. 
um, because I hadn't heard about it. You can look it up online. JDDJ is the is the acronym here. It was a document created by the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation, which is a group of liberal Lutherans who reject the the scriptures, who say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or it's an opinion, uh, who say that uh, the scriptures are not the word of God and, and all these sort of things. There was a bunch of liberal Lutherans who rejected that the Bible is God's word. They got together with the Roman Catholics. It, it was in 1999, and they wrote this document. And it states that the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, quote, this is the quote, now share a common understanding of justification by God's grace through faith in Christ, end quote. Meaning that the 500-year-old conflict that has been going on for this whole time is now gone. It's just evaporated. It's done. And what they said was this. Both churches, both bodies, the Catholics and the Lutherans, could now say this sentence together. This is it. I am a sinner justified by grace. Uh, Now we hear this as Lutherans and we say, that sounds exactly like what I'm saying. That's what that's what I'm doing. Uh, and and if, if that's true, then thanks be to God. We're, we're united and everything's great. But the problem here, you could probably guess it, is, is a, a thing called equivocation. This means that they use the same words, but they had different meanings. They both are able to say the sentence, but they have very different understanding of what the words in that sentence mean. Um, think of it this way. It's like saying, I am a sinner justified by grace, <laughs> right? Now, if I put the scare quotes on this, then you're going to say, well, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> right? Or it's like telling your wife, I love you. <laughs> why, why did you have to say, why did you have to put that in square, scare quotes? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so let, let me break this down. There are three words here, three uh, uh, verbs and and, uh, nouns here that we don't agree upon uh, because of equivocation here. Uh, The first word is they say, I am a sinner. Okay, well, what what do we mean by sinner? The Roman Catholics meant by sinner. uh, What they mean by sin is when they talk about original sin, they mean an inclination to sin, that that I'm prone to to sin, that, that I have a tendency to sin, that I'm sick, that I'm wounded and prone. I, I have, I have like a, a, I, I, you know, I broke my foot and, but I can limp, right? That, that's it. That's what the Roman Catholics, the Bible talks about sin this way, that original sin, the sin David inherited from his father and mother is not just an inclination to sin or a tendency to sin. It is sin. And it is punishable. It's not that you have the potential for the disease. It's that you have the disease. That's very different, right? It's like saying, well, you could have diabetes versus you have diabetes. 
You could have the versus you have it. And furthermore, Ephesians 2 says, uh, 2 verse 1 says, we're not sick in our sins. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Uh, let, let me restart the record or let me start a new recording here. Okay. Um, so the difference here is that if we're only sick and we're only inclined to sin, then what do you really need from God? You need help. If you only broke your foot, what do you need? You need a crutch. You need a wheelchair or something. But you, you can do it. You can do a lot of the work. You need a boost or a crutch or something like this. You can contribute to your salvation if you just put in, 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 in enough work. But if you are dead in your sins, you're truly guilty of sin, then what you need is not help. What you need is a savior. Somebody who, to raise you from the dead. What you need is life. Um, you don't need a, a, a vac. You don't vaccinate a dead person. It's too late. What that person needs is life. You can't contribute to your own salvation. And that's how the scriptures speak. They don't say, well, you, you just need a, a boost from Jesus. You need Jesus. You need everything he has to give you. You need resurrection is what it is. So the first term that we disagree upon is the word sinner. We don't even agree on that. Now, the second word we don't agree upon is uh, grace. So we said, well, what is grace? Well, the Roman Catholics view grace as a substance, like an infused substance of a thing. There's a Latin term for this is called gratia infusa. That grace is like a supplement, uh, I don't know, like creatine or vitamins or medicine that can help you do something. And the more you accumulate of this grace, the more you're able to do. The more vitamins you take, the better and healthier you're going to be. So if you have more grace, then you're going to be more justified. The Lutherans, uh, what the Bible says here is that grace is not a substance. Grace is a disposition that God has in his heart. Grace isn't something that God gives to us. Grace is the way that God views us. It's, it's a feeling that God has toward us. In other words, it's the way he treats us, which is not according to what we deserve, but according to his grace. Um, the difference here is this. This is a massive difference. If grace is a, cum- grace is a substance, it can be accumulated and stacked and you can have more or less of it, uh, which means it can give you more and more strength to do the things that you need to do. God gives you grace and you respond by doing. So God gives you grace, you respond by doing good works. And then God rewards your good works with more grace. And then you do more good works and, and so on and so forth. With enough time, you're like rolling up the hill up to heaven. But the problem here is that grace is not a substance. It's not a thing that we can keep in like a canister or a jar or something. Grace is what God thinks of us. So grace doesn't move us to do something for God. Grace moves God to do something for us. Grace is the reason God sent his son 
his only begotten son to die on a cross innocently for you and me, worms. People who deserve nothing. I don't even deserve for God to look at me. And what did he do? He gave me his son in exchange for me. That's beautiful, right? This is the greatest joy ever. So grace is the reason that God sends his Holy Spirit to me and to preach the forgiveness of sins over and over and over again. So this is very different. When the Catholic says, I need God's grace every day, what he means by that is that he means that God's help, he needs God's help every day to earn his salvation, to, to climb and go up. But when the Lutheran says this, when, when, when I say this, when the people of the church say this, we say, I need God's grace every day. It means this. I need God to turn away from my sins, to forgive me. To remember what Jesus did for me on the cross. I need that every day. I, I need him not to look at my life or my heart. I need him to look at the heart of Jesus. And to see that in his heart, that is purity. Don't look here. Don't look away from me. Look only at your son and what he did for me. That is my salvation. So the Catholic will say, I need God to do something for me. And the Lutheran says, I need God to do everything for me. I need him to do all of it. I need him to save me every single bit. And in fact, if I'm saved, then glory be to God alone. And I get no credit. And I'm happy to get no credit. (laughs) Um, Okay, that's the second word. Sinner, we talked about grace. Now, finally, justified. Well, what does it mean to be justified? Um, Roman Catholics say that justification is to be made righteous. This is very nuanced. This is very subtle, but it is important. This is a difference of night and day, although our ears may not hear it or perceive it right at first. Catholics say we justification is to be made righteous and Lutherans say justification means to be declared righteous, to be counted righteous. <laughs> that, that, that is your hope. I know it seems subtle. There's a massive difference here uh, between the two. To be made righteous and to be declared righteous, there are, they are worlds apart. The Catholic asks for grace to be made righteous. Progressively, to work his way to righteousness. The Lutheran ask for God's grace to declare him righteous through the merits of Christ alone. In practice, what this means is that the Catholic, for the Catholic, justification is a journey. It is a, an upward movement. Uh, it's a process. It's a, it, it is a progress in time that you develops over time. And you get closer and closer and closer to this. This is because it is my action and not God's. On the other hand, Lutherans will say this, that justification is a declaration, which means it is not a process. It is not progressive. It does not change. It is instantaneous. It doesn't progress because this is because if it is God's action, then it is done and it is in the moment. So it's... (laughs) I don't know. Um, 
let me show you a let me show you a, a a diagram something I drew up yesterday. Sorry. Oh, here it is. Okay. All right. On the screen, you can see here just a bunch of lines and it looks like a mess. But look down here where I have A, B, and C. And I have three different... That stands for three different people here. Um, person A uh, is trying to make their way to heaven. And that line up here is righteousness. That is uh, the, 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 what is sufficient to get into heaven. So person A starts working up and he's, you see the squiggly lines and he's going up and down and okay, he's doing good and then he sins. He goes to church for a month and then he skips the service. Blah, blah, blah. And then he dies. Where does he die? At that line there. And he's missing all of this, this, uh, this dotted line here, he's missing that. And he fell that short of righteousness. Okay, that's person A. Person B uh, does all of the things that is required uh, through failures and successes and keeps trying and never gives up and finally makes it to righteousness and he dies. Okay. The third person, C, uh, lives a pretty good life, is probably a monk, is very generous, feeds the poor and homeless and all these things. And he makes it all his way, his way up. And in fact, even exceeds the line of righteousness. Okay. Now, person A, where does he go? Well, he's not going to go to hell because he believes in God. But the Roman Catholic Church will say he goes to purgatory. So for all of the whatever's left in his life that he didn't whatever he's lacking of righteousness he goes to purgatory and he suffers for it this is i'm i'm being fair i'm not making things up i'm not giving a straw man argument or a caricature this is roman catholic doctrine um so he has to make up for that lack of righteousness and when he does then he can enter heaven so so say whatever he fell short of that's about 50 to 100 years in purgatory of suffering Person B, he made it to righteousness. Well, then he dies and he goes straight to heaven. Great. Person C um, exceeded the amount of righteousness needed to get into heaven. And in fact, he has a surplus of, of righteousness, a surplus of this points or currency of righteousness. And so, so what? He has more than he needs. So what he could do is he can actually transfer the extra over to the person who has less of it. It's kind of like uh, you made your way out of a pit. Well, then now you kind of reach down and help somebody else out of a pit. Um, and uh, you can kind of throw a rope down there to help them. That's what's happening here. Well, now the question is, well, how do you get the excess righteousness of one person over to somebody who has less of that righteousness. Well, that excess of excess uh, righteousness, um, those extra good works, is called in the Catholic Church the treasury of merits. It is a, it is a like a banking system. It is, it is a bank of good works. 
And who has the ability to dispense and allocate the different good works and righteousness to others? Well, it is the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the Roman Catholic Church has the ability, the Pope has the ability to take what is extra over here and transfer it to your account. For what? A, a small fee. For, for an exchange. So that, um, so, so the way that would happen is that this is, this is still in effect to today. This is called an indulgence. That you would go to the priest and you would say, hey, I, I, you know what? My, my cousin died and he tried his best, but he was an alcoholic or something. And he was not good enough. So I need some of St. Peter's extra good works. I need some of my great grandma's piety and, and niceness and gen generosity. I need that to go to him because he was kind of selfish. So the Roman Catholic Church says, okay, I can arrange this. Um, if you give me, if you pay to help get the, the uh, basilica of uh, St. Paul and St. Peter built, St. Peter and Paul built, then I can transfer some of this for you. And then they did it. That, that again, I'm, I'm not being un, unfair here. I'm just telling you exactly how this works. I'm just breaking this down, how it works. Those who have an extra or excess righteousness can transfer that to, to then others. Um, this is, this turns grace into a currency and into a thing to be had. Um, let me, I know we're over time. Okay, let me say this. I know we're over time. So if you need to sign off, if you need to go, you're free to go. Uh, I'm recording it so it'll be online and you can listen to the last part. If you want to stay and listen to this last part, I'm happy to, I'm just going to keep going because it's, it's so essential. So if you sign off, I'm not going to be offended and I understand. Okay, um, so, so this is the, the understanding of the Roman Catholic Church. That's how they dispense this. But who is, for us, who is the only person who made it to that line? Christ. Who's the person who exceeded that line? Christ. So we would say nobody. In fact, people felt woefully short of the line of righteousness. But only Christ exceeded it and surpassed it to such a degree that he has so much righteousness that he has given an access to everybody. Everyone. Everybody. So that all of us can claim the righteousness of Christ and say, that is our saint. That is our holy one. He is the one who will get me into heaven. I don't need to pray to St. Peter or to St. Paul or ask them for help. I have one mediator and that is Christ and his wounds. By his stripes, I am healed. That, I, I, I don't need anything else. <laughs> right? that, that's what I need. So... What, what I want to get to is this next question is this, it, this often com comes up in the, in times of suffering and testing and in the life of a Christian. And it's this, they'll ask me, um, can I be certain and sure of the forgiveness of sin? Can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? Now, if salvation depends upon you and your works, your merits, then the answer is no. You can never 
be sure if you have enough of them. You'll always be this imaginary line of righteousness. How do you know when you've passed it? How, how do you know when you've, you've made, you've done enough? How do you know when you're good enough? I, I don't know. So in the Roman Catholic church, this is, uh, you can never be certain of salvation. You just have to keep pushing and trying and trying and trying and trying, striving. And even when you die, you're wondering, is heaven, did I, did I make it? Did, am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to see Jesus when I close my eyes? Or will I be in purgatory? That's what, what's going on in your head. But if salvation depends upon Jesus, then the question is not, did I do enough? The question is, did he do enough? Was he good enough? Was he righteous enough? Was he perfect and holy and blameless enough? And the answer is yes. Yes, he was. And the second question is, has he promised to save those who believe in him? And the answer is yes, he, he has. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic can never be certain of his salvation. And in fact, if they're certain of their salvation, um, it is arrogant. It is prideful because you think you're so good that you could earn salvation. But as Lutherans, we say you can be certain of salvation. Why? Because I had nothing to do with it. Because Jesus had everything to do with it. Um, Titus 1 chapter 2 says, God, who cannot lie, promised eternal life. He can't lie. He promised it. <laughs> That's it. That's all you need. If, for a person who can't lie, you just tell me the word and that's enough. Uh, Romans 8, 38 through 39 says this. Listen to, to the way Paul speaks. He says, For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able, is, is capable, has the ability to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He, what did he say? He's not, I'm, I'm pretty certain. He doesn't say, well, I, I think I am sure. I'm certain of it. As, 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 as God lives, that's how certain I am. That's it. Um, so the, the reason I'm saying this is that I, I don't, uh, as a Lutheran, you, you shouldn't be humble when it comes to your salvation. You shouldn't be, ah, you know, I, I hope so. Are you, when you die, are you going to, ah, I really, you know, I really, uh, that's my desire. I hope. No, you say, yes, I will. Because it does not depend upon me. It depends totally upon Jesus. And he will not fail me. He, will, he won't let me fall from his hand. That, that's it. That's, that's, you put uh, your eternal life into his hands and say, you, I know you won't drop me. I know you won't let me go. And I know you won't disappoint me or put me to shame. So I want to end with this, this final question, which is this. What makes a Christian a Christian?
Um, and this is it. Faith, this trust or reliance, confidence in God's forgiveness through Christ, through his death and resurrection. Um, that's what makes you a Christian. That, specifically. Uh, I, I want to read you a quote from, uh, uh, this is a, a textbook that we use at the seminary. Uh, Franz Pieper wrote it. Uh, it's called The Christian Dogmatics. He has this great, it's a great work. Uh, very, very good. Um, one of my favorite theologians. But he has this wonderful, beautiful paragraph here. He says this, I'll, I'll close with this. He says, a person does not become a Christian by believing in the existence of God. Because even the heathen know that there's a God. And he doesn't become a Christian by believing that God created the world and governs it. Because even the heathen knows this fact too, in a measure, in, in some degree. Neither does he become a Christian by believing that God, uh, uh, that God rewards good deeds and punishes evil. The heathen have retained that knowledge too. Neither does he become a Christian by striving to obey the voice of his conscience. The heathen do that and uh, they still, they have no hope. Nor does he become a Christian by giving assent to the story of Christ or of the son of God who died and rose again. Because even the devils and believe this and Satan himself believes this. And then he says this, no, a person becomes a Christian, a member of the Christian church, only when in the, here's a, a Latin phrase, terrores conscientiae, which is the terrors of the conscience. He completely despairs of his own morality, that is his good works, and through the operation of the Holy Ghost comes to believe the effectus of the story of Christ, namely that this. This is the one thing that makes a Christian a Christian. That he believes that his sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. In other words, when by faith he applies justification to himself. So to, to close here, what makes a Christian a Christian? This is why I said that this is probably the most important lesson of the whole, the whole uh, uh, class. What makes a Christian a Christian is when you rely upon, believe, trust, and confide in the death and resurrection of Christ, that that is sufficient. And that is all you need to get into heaven. Not one work, not one thing, not one good thought or ounce of your doing gets you into heaven. It is all and only and always Christ and Christ alone. That's it. So, okay, I know we're over time uh, quite a bit, but uh, it's good. I could talk about this forever. This is the best thing in the world. This is the most joyful thing. Uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, guys, uh, good to see you. I will see you on Sunday and then uh, next Wednesday. Take care.